1: At least 12 black men were beaten or shot by white police. The people of Dawson didn't read a word of this in their local weekly paper, the Dawson News. Nor was there a line of coverage in the Albany Herald. The killing of black people, even by police, simply wasn't news.
2: That's a clip from Buried Truths, a podcast from WABE in Atlanta. In the new season, host Hank Klibanoff investigates the 1958 death of James Brazier in Dawson, Georgia. Dawson is in the southwest part of the state in a county known as Terrible Terrell. It earned that nickname for its violent, racist treatment of black residents. James Brazier was beaten by police on his front lawn before they hauled him off to jail and beat him again. He died of brain trauma days later. But no one was held accountable, and his killing was never officially deemed a murder. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. 65 years after Brazier's death, what justice can there be? And what can investigating long, cold cases tell us about today? We talk about that and more after the break. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
3: And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Let's turn to the creator of Buried Truths, journalist Hank Klibanoff. He's also a professor of creative writing at Emory University, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Race Beat. Hank, welcome back to 1A.
1: Thank you, Jen. It's good to be with you.
2: So I have to say your podcast is, is a tough listen. Um, but it's an important one, and I just want to give a heads up to our listeners that this conversation will likely be difficult, too. But let's meet the people Central to the story to start. Uh, They're no longer alive, uh, but in 1958, they lived in that Georgia county known as Terrible Terrell. Who was James Brazier?
1: James Brazier was a 31-year-old husband and father of four. Uh, He worked three or four different jobs. Whenever there was work, he would take it um, and he uh including working at a, at a service station and uh other other pickup jobs if he could, and his wife also uh Hattie Brazier, worked at least two jobs beautician seamstress,ing things like that and they did well in fact, we know from the records that they were actually making more money than uh the police who ended up becoming their tormentors and um he in nineteen fifty eight decided he wanted to live like a lot of other people were living, and he bought himself a 1958 Chevrolet Impala, the new, the newest model Chevrolet uh, on the market in 1958. And that drew the abuse of local police.
2: One of the other central characters in the story is police officer Wayman Cherry. He was notoriously violent toward black residents of Terrell County. Tell us more about him.
1: Uh, Wayman Cherry... Uh, was a police officer who uh, was not trained to be a police officer, uh, but very few policemen were back then. They mostly <clears throat> just followed somebody who was older and did what they did and learned the bad habits that way. And he was mean. He he was just mean. And even white people who knew him said he was just mean. And, uh, but he was particularly uh, mean to black people. Uh, we, Talked to his son, um, who you uh, is on the podcast, and who who just says, "Look, he he was a racist, and there's no no nothing else you could say about him except that he he felt very strongly about that." And the son watched him beat up a black man on the street one day. Uh, he went into the county jail where he could tell to, from the sound of things that people were beating up inmates, uh, black inmates. Um, and he, uh, after he killed James Brazier, he got a raise and we know this cause we've looked at the minutes of all the city council meetings, uh, meetings. And then after he killed a second person, five weeks later, he was promoted to police chief.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to pause here and just note that you say, you mentioned, we, we found these records mm-hmm. and your students are involved in these investigations. Tell mm-hmm. us about the role they play.
1: Sure. Um, I've been very fortunate. Uh, when I went to Emory University to begin with and was applying for a uh, position there, uh, part of my application was that I wanted to create the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project. And fortunate for me, they said yes. I mean, I'm, we have a wonderful history department, and I was had been a journalist. Uh, but I paired up very quickly with a history professor, Brett Gadsden. He's now at Northwestern. And the two of us together, he brought the, the role of the classic, uh, classically trained historian to the classroom. Um, and as he said to me one day, he says, Hank, that's sort of the milieu that I'm used to working in. But you come in and you're treating this like it's a newsroom mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where the students are coming in knowing things that we don't know uh, yet. And that's the discovery process. It's so wonderful uh and um, so it was a nice uh, combination of, of uh, influences, I think, there. And so these students, I've now taught about 190 students since 2011. I only teach this one semester a year with one or two exceptions. Uh, and most of the classes are capped at 16 students and it's cross-listed in history and American studies and African-American studies and whatever department I'm in. It used to be journalism. It's now creative writing where I teach nonfiction.
2: I would imagine investigating a case like this would be life-changing for the students who work on this project. What have you heard from them about how this type of investigation affects them and the way they think about this country?
1: Um, it's um, – I, sometimes I just want to deflect it because it's so nice what, what they say, and I don't want it to, uh, you know, get to me. Um, but I have seen it change, students, absolutely. Um, the first season of the podcast, uh, we had this incredible discovery of uh, the grave site of a man, Isaiah Nixon, who was killed in 1948 for voting. And one of my students achieved something that his family had not been able to achieve for four, for 60 7 years she found Isaiah Nixon's gravesite and that's on the first season of the podcast and it's an incredible moment uh as as we were driving down to that town uh she had said how her goal was to become a large animal veterinarian and soon after the discovery of the gravesite and meeting the family of Isaiah Nixon it becomes so integral to that story she uh asked me if I would write a recommendation for her to go to an internship at the, at the Carter Center here in Atlanta, and I did. And when I read her essay, I realized that she had changed, that she had other aspirations, and she went on to Duke Law School, and she's now practicing law here in Atlanta.
2: Well, let's turn back to the current season of the podcast. As we said, James Brazier was beaten by police on his front lawn in front of family and neighbors, and that includes Lucius Holloway. Here's Lucius telling us about what he witnessed.
1: He was just screaming. He could hear him screaming. It looked like back to Atlanta. And they was hitting two wham, 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 just hitting everywhere. And he was just waving his arm about, trying to dodge. And he just fell and he was rolling.
2: Police then took James Brazier to the local jail where they beat him again. And he died days later, but it was never called a murder. What conclusion did you come to in your investigation about how and why James Brazier was killed?
1: Well, we were fortunate to be able to gather a lot of records. Um, <clears throat> the uh, There were two significant investigations. Uh, one was, and the most helpful, came from the NAACP, the field secretary of the NAACP, Amos Holmes. And keep in mind, so he's field secretary in Georgia. At the same time, Medgar Evers is field secretary over in Mississippi. And, in fact, the person who succeeds Amos Holmes as field secretary uh, be- uh, becomes uh, quite famous too. So there's uh, Vernon Jordan. So um, this and he was very committed to getting the truth, and uh, and he found witnesses, three witnesses in the jail, who were more forthcoming with him than they had been with the FBI. Uh, Georgia had limitations on how far the FBI could go in investigating law enforcement in Georgia. Believe it or not, uh, they when they interviewed. Uh, the FBI came into the jail to interview three the three witnesses who were in the jail the night that James Brazier was brought in, uh, then dragged out in the middle of the night and then brought back in all but dead. <clears throat> the uh, sheriff was allowed to go in and out of the their interview with this witness over and over again. They had a, the window was open so that the ju- the sheriff's trustee, uh, sort of an anointed uh, inmate who snitched on other inmates, uh, he was hanging right outside the window. And um, they made it very difficult. The FBI was hot and cold in in its dutifulness, largely due to J. Edgar Hoover uh, and his lack of interest in these cases. Uh, What really happened that was important was this is 1958, so it's right after passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And that Civil Rights Act included creation – and emboldening the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And uh, at at a critical time, about two months after James Brazier is killed, uh, the Washington Post sends a reporter down to hear, to, to watch this. A, a message has come out of Dawson and reached the Washington Post newsroom. Please, please, please help us. And they send down the reporter, Robert E. Lee Baker. What a name to be going into the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and who who later – I wrote about him in, uh, with my co-author Gene Roberts in The Race Beat. He later dropped the Lee and just became Robert E. Baker. But he did a phenomenal front-page story. And so the Civil Rights Division in Washington sees this and calls the FBI and says, hey, are you guys on this one? And they said, oh yeah, uh, yeah. oh, yeah, 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 we're all over it. But they really weren't. They were on the verge of closing it. But they got reengaged. Suddenly there's a grand jury in Macon, a federal grand jury in Macon and um it it just fails utterly they just weren't prepared they didn't hadn't done their work um cri- critically important is the 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 police officer we were talking about who was so awful uh, mr cherry um he he's on the streets of Dawson knowing he's under investigation by this grand jury up in Macon and he sees one of the key witnesses against him a few days before the grand jury meets and he says to him he says what you doing in town he says i'm whatever he said i'm here to pick up something for my wife he said, you don't need to be out here. I need to take you with me. And he takes him, he locks him up for j- in jail. And he's in jail for the duration of the grand jury. Now, we don't have those grand jury records, so we really don't know what happened inside there. But there was just no, no interest at the local level or, or federal in prosecuting this as a criminal act.
2: Hank, I was struck by the bravery. I don't know what else to call it. The bravery of Hattie Bell Brazier. Um, She filed a federal lawsuit against the Terrell County Police over her husband's killing. She lost that case, but just help us understand what was driving her and how hard she fought to try to get some justice for her husband.
1: On the day after James Brazier was first arrested on the lawn of their house, they'd been in church, two different churches all day long, And the police come to arrest him. He had been driving through town earlier, dropping off kids and nieces and nephews from church, and he saw that the police had stopped his father. Now, James Brazier, like I told you, was driving a 1958 Chevrolet Impala, and he had given his father his 1956 Chevrolet. So they both liked late model cars, and the police would stop them all the time. Routine stops for nothing, and they'd always add some alcohol related charge to it okay and so he sees a policeman trying to force his father to get into the patrol car and he gets up and he says gets out of the car and says to the policeman don't hit my daddy i'll help you get him in the car of course all the policeman hears is that imperative don't hit my daddy and the policeman finally gets his father into the car and turns to james brazier and says you go home and i'm coming after you and he did he went after him and he you know that's where they arrested him on the lawn, and all the neighbors saw it. In fact, they all ultimately gave affidavits, um, and the police could do just about anything they wanted in a situation like that. And it wasn't, um, you know. Keep in mind, there was a lot of white anger at that point. This is four years after Brown versus Board, <clears throat> which is a major upheaval, of course, in 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 the South, uh, of the order, the white order of things. It's uh, right after – it's after Rosa Parks by three years. It's after Little Rock by one year. There's a growing storm here in in the South. And these white people, including the sheriff, Zeke Matthews, say quite openly to the Washington Post, to the New York Times, knowing it's going to be all over the nationals, they said, you know, we have a certain way of living down here. And my job is to make sure that we are able to protect it and And keep it that way.
2: And so that's the environment in which Hattie tries yes. to get justice for right. her husband, and she was unsuccessful, but but she tried. And and help us understand the danger that presented to her and her family as she was, sure. as she was pushing for this.
1: Well, she was, and I, when she walked in after James Fraser was beat up and he's in jail, and there he has to go to mayor's court. <laughs> the mayor, who is an automobile dealer, uh, is the, is adjudicating guilt or innocence in this case. And Jay, and most people just come in and plead guilty. And she comes into the courtroom and she sees what they had done to her husband overnight. And, and I won't describe it right now, but it's really gross what they had done. And he can hardly talk. He clearly has some sort of brain damage and um, she grabs him and she takes him into the car. She takes him to, uh, one hospital where it says, nothing we can do for you, widow, he's still alive. And then she takes him to Columbus, 60 miles away, and they that's where he ultimately dies. And she decided, I'm going to get justice on this somewhere or another. And so she brings on board Donald Hollowell, a brilliant attorney from uh, Atlanta, and C.B. King of Albany, two of the most prominent black attorneys in Georgia, and they sue— the mayor, I mean the police chief and the and the sheriff and the various law enforcement officers for a wrongful death, a civil suit. And she sticks with this all the way to the end. And she there are some important Pyrrhic victories here. Let's um, let's get yeah. into
2: some of those Pyrrhic victories after the break. And also into how this story is part of a larger story in Terrell County that includes the intimidation of Black voters in the Jim Crow South. We'll get into that right after the break.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
2: Let's get back into the conversation. Hank, we left off talking about Hattie Bell Brazier. She sued several men she said were involved in her husband's death, including Terrell County Sheriff Zeke Matthews. He was at the jail the night her husband was beating. And according to witnesses who were also detained in the jail, asked the other officers, quote, did you do a good job? Now, a few years later, Sheriff Matthews shows up in a New York Times article about the intimidation of Black voters in the Jim Crow South. And here's what Matthews said to Black residents gathered at Mount Olive Baptist Church. This is read by a voice
0: Are any of you disturbed? Can you vote if you're qualified?
2: Do you need people to come down and tell you what to do? Haven't you been getting along well for the past hundred years? Now it was a performance for the journalists in attendance including white reporter Bill Shipp. He had rented a car to drive to the meeting. Here's Bill. When I really got frightened it was when I got outside
3: and we tried to climb into that big old white car and it wouldn't run because we saw where they, they poured sand into the
1: gas tank and there were guys driving around flashing lights in our face. I really got scared then because I thought, they were, I thought they would be shooting.
2: Now, this is an example of why the Georgia county where James Brazier lived and died was called Terrible Terrell. Describe in more detail what the county was like.
1: Well, it was uh, a <clears throat> great a great amount of poverty there of course it's a farming community but mostly peanuts and um the population was uh about 60 some, 67% african american uh but only 2% on the voter registration ro- uh, rolls were uh were african american uh, it was just a poor town where uh, uh the the whites dominated everything and there was just no recourse for black people when we talked about the word finally getting out about what was happening down there and reaching the Washington Post newsroom. One of my writers, uh, I work with, Richard Halleck's referred to it as the Underground Railroad of Information. It, you just couldn't get information out of there about what was going on. Uh, it was locked up.
2: Hmm. I mean, in response to terrible acts of violence and racism, black people in Terrell County found ways to fight back. What examples did you find? Well,
1: that was one way, was by saying, you know, uh, writing letters to officials in Atlanta and hoping that they could bring it. And, I mean, these letters are sad. I mean, there's like, help, help, please get here, please, please. They have killed five people or whatever, and, and they're, they're, they've sort of got their eye on others. Uh, We're scared. Please get down here. We're afraid. Um, <clears throat> and they resisted by getting the word out as best they could. Uh, they also persisted in pursuing the vote. Uh, Charles Sherrod and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating SNCC really was very active down there and they were really, you know, stealing up the spines of a lot of black people who were not looking for a confrontation with the police because they knew they would lose, but they also knew what their rights were and they were willing to listen to the wise and courageous people like Charles Sherrod.
2: I'm curious to, to know how you initially learned about James Brazier's death.
1: You know, interestingly, uh, because I had been following civil rights cold cases and because I had been involved going way back to earlier in the 2000s <clears throat> and watched the FBI cold case initiative started as a result of all these cases that journalists were bringing to light that n- there was not any active investigation into, uh, uh, at the time, the Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and Robert Mueller, the head of the FBI, released a list – of a hundred and something cases. Um, and we all knew it was not nearly as many as cases as there, as there were, but James Brazier was on there. And a colleague I was working with on some cold cases across the South, John Fleming, an, uh, a, a journalist here in Atlanta, he had just done took on the responsibility of submitting the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests. And when that stuff came in, it was like, whoa, this is some pretty powerful stuff. Of course there were a lot of redactions, um, as I mentioned, the grand jury information is still being withheld from us. Uh, so the more I read – and and then we submitted a second one for the the other man who was killed five weeks later by the same police officer. Uh, and his name was Willie Countryman, and that too was very revealing, that this was a reign of terror and that that and that Robert E. Lee Baker of the Washington Post had nailed that story completely uh, on a very – without much material, and certainly without even the internet to to work
2: with. Well, as we said, after police beat James Brazier and, and brought him to jail and beat him again, they were worried enough about his condition to call in a physician. Dr. Charles M. Ward later described James's injuries in a deposition for Hattie Brazier's lawsuit, and here that is voiced by an actor.
3: His gait was not steady. His speech at the time was, well, incoherent, not as you would ordinarily expect, But there was another thing in the general examination. One of the things, the odor of alcohol was fairly strong.
2: Now, when Dr. Ward was asked how the prisoner got hurt, here's what he said.
3: I never ask such questions. I'd rather not know.
2: Hank, what did you learn, not just about the brutality of the police in Terrell County, but the complicity of other actors in this and other cases?
1: Um, I'm glad you asked that question because it shows up again and again in the cases that we've done. And that is the medical racism uh, that leads physicians who are in a position to help or save or extend the lives of people who are beaten by, whether it's police officers or just other white thugs, refusing to do so. And in this case, um, when he says to James Brazier, I th- uh, says of James Brazier, I think he's just drunk. Put him back in the cell when clear- he's got blood in his ear. He's slurring his speech, and, and he puts him back in the cell when he should have sent him to the hospital and not even the local hospital but to Columbus where they could conduct x-rays and do some, some testing, neurological testing. So uh, it happens again and again, and we uh, – in fact, we will be doing a bonus episode this season on medical racism in this and other cases that we've looked at.
2: Now, you've said that James Brazier's killing was never officially called a murder. Why not?
1: Well, there was never any adjudication. Mm -hmm. There was no one was ever charged. There was locally, I mean, there you would have had to ask the police to, you know, police themselves, and they weren't about to do that. They were not as long as you can be promoted from police officer to police chief, you're not going to investigate yourself. Um, And so there was never criminal charges. And all there was was the one civil case um, and it 's produced, and this is part of the legacy of Hattie Brazier. It produced two three thousand pages of documents of transcript because her attorneys had said they were going to appeal it now they ultimately didn 't but that 's why a transcript was produced, and that transcript reveals the dirty, rotten secrets of this of this county and of the way life was in one thousand nine hundred and fifty eight in, in a locked up city, town like Dawson.
2: Don Hollowell was Hattie Brazier's attorney. He represented her in that unsuccessful lawsuit against the police responsible for her husband's death. You discovered a letter sent to Don Hollowell, which an actress read for your podcast.
3: Dear Mr. Hollowell, I am white. When I was a child, I lived in terror part of the time, afraid for the colored people who had any unpleasant contact with law officers. My father was a policeman for 25 years. I loved him and idolized him, but he was cruel to Negroes. There seemed to be an unspoken law among police officers that Negroes were to be kept in complete subjection. They were, too. Or they were found to be missing or beaten and nothing was ever done. And she ended her letter with these words. This is the first letter I've ever written that I cannot sign. I'm not brave like you. I'm a coward.
2: Hank, how did you find that letter?
1: Uh, The Auburn Avenue Research Library, which is a division of the Fulton, Atlanta Fulton County Library, um, holds a rich, rich history of the life of of African Americans uh, in, in Atlanta and beyond. And Donald Hollowell left his papers there. And so I was going through those papers one day. And a lot of it was just routine stuff, representing people, you know, who were suing somebody over a door that wasn't hung properly and other things. And then I come across this letter from this woman inside the Brazier file. And it just, I don't know, probably an archive is not the place you want to start shedding tears, but it was hard not to. Um, that letter just revealed something so important to me because it's it's easy to just draw so much despair looking at these cases and yet here was here was a good person she was she was good she wasn't crazy enough to put her name on it but she was a good good enough to write him a letter and to encourage him to keep going with these things keep helping her and um, gosh what I wouldn't give to <laughs> be able to know who she was and uh, we're going to publish that. Letter on, on a website here at WABE, and, and before too long when that episode runs. And I would, I would love more than anything for someone to say, Ah, that was my mother, that was my grandmother. We'd love to know more.
2: You know, Hank, I, I can't help but think about the fact that this, this podcast is happening at a time when there are efforts in certain states to erase talk about race and racism. In America. And, and I wonder if that gives your work a sense of even more importance, more weight.
1: Well, uh, I think it does. You know, um, I have to say I draw some uh, security because I work at a, at a I don't work at a public university. Uh, but I'm not sure if I worked at a public university that this wouldn't be on someone's radar. Uh, that that this is not the kind of thing they want taught, and I just feel very fortunate that at Emory I'm able to do it. And and not only have the students, you know, been very grateful, their parents, their parents have become donors to to this project, you know. Um, so I feel I feel it, it becomes a little bit more mission oriented. Uh, I, I I I trace journalists always want to go back and look back at stories they looked at before. How did that turn out? Close the loop on these things. And that's part of what motivates me on this. Even though I didn't cover these stories, they were left completely uncovered and they were not finished. And, and that's part of what motivates me, but there's absolutely a social justice issue here. These people did not get justice and what a shame that they didn't get justice and uh, the only thing that I can hope to do is bring them the judgment of history, is, 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 bring, is bring the students together, look at all the records that any jury would have looked at, any group would have looked at in trying to assess what happened, who the perpetrators were, who the victims were, and to study it and then come away with certain conclusions. Um, we're not ideological about it. We're not always going to find that it worked out, you know, that the white guy was the bad guy and... Uh, but when it does, we feel compelled that this is to, to say it because it's the only opportunity left for these families to get justice.
2: I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that that this kind of violent death—I mean, the loss of a parent at any age—is um, incredibly difficult. But James Brazier's killing, I, I have to imagine, it had an enormous impact on his family in in the years to follow you you actually spoke to one of his daughters who's still alive for the podcast how did that how did this change his family's life their their trajectory yeah
1: it <laughs> uh look i the the two daughters who have been very helpful to us hattie and verda uh god bless them for helping us and for doing it you know n- they didn't know me when I walked in the door and started interviewing him with Professor Gadsden and one of my early students who just took to this Mary Claire Kelly didn't, you know, they didn't know us and they didn't. And I think, you know, what did we want? did we want to make a move, try to make money off the family? What were we, what were we after? And I think that's an, you know, not an inappropriate response. You know, people are possessive of their family history, family history. But I think they let, ultimately we just kept going and, I, you know, I think that that gives them some satisfaction that somebody cared enough to look at this. I think that probably uh, the families are were were sundered by the loss of James Brazier, the loss of their income, um, and that that heartbreak will never end. Uh, but I will also say, and this comes out in the podcast, that the family of the main perpetrator here. Wayman Cherry has also come to us and talked to us. And what they say is pretty remarkable. And, um, and I'm just so grateful that they had the courage because I'm talking about starting with a, a granddaughter who never knew any of this about her grandfather. She used to drive from her college over in Alabama to her home over in Valdosta. And when she would go through Dawson, she'd think, wow. This is my grandfather where he was a police chief, and she'd sit up a little taller in her seat. Now she'd just soon know anybody there not know who she's related to.
2: That's Hank Klebanoff. He's a professor of creative writing at Emory University. His students there helped investigate the death of James Brazier for the podcast Buried Truths from WABE. Hank is the host and creator of Buried Truths. He also won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2007 for his book, The Race Beat. Hank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today's show was produced by Avery Jessa Chapnik and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.